this sermon was going to be a lot different with just some part of the passage. When Andrew and I got married uh, many years ago now, uh, we were gifted from one of my staff colleagues of the church where I served. Uh, they gave us the use of their timeshare credits. Uh, I've never owned a timeshare, um, but they gave us the credits uh, to use for our honeymoon. And they gave us a catalog that came with it, and they said, you know, you'd pick uh, from places that are around the world uh, to decide where you want to go. And we were excited. Like, anywhere in the world you can go, we got these credits for one week. And I suppose like timeshares go, uh, once we put the dates in, we realized that the list was very much limited. <laughs> it got down to about two places. And so we ended up staying in Cancun, Mexico, uh, which was pretty cool. I have to admit, it was pretty cool. And as, a, as a things go, that resort was all-inclusive, but it wasn't all equal. Right? It was an all-inclusive resort, but not all equal. Instead, when you uh, checked in, the resort would assign you uh, a particular status, and you would get a, a colored bracelet that would match your status. You were either a member, which had these kind of cool metallic gold bracelets. Uh, you were a guest of a member. My wife and I talked the other day about this. We couldn't remember what color our bracelets were. And I couldn't find a picture that had the bracelet in it. So let's just say it was blue. <laughs> who knows? And then if you were someone who just happened to book online, like, oh, I want us to go to Cancun, Mexico, stay at the resort, I'll just book online, you got another, a third color of a bracelet. And these were used for quick identification uh, by the staff at this resort. And the speed and attentiveness of service that was delivered to you was based on the color of bracelet you had. For instance... If you sat at the bar and you were hoping to be served, if you had a gold bracelet on, you'd be served immediately and you'd be offered the top shelf booze. If you had the bracelet that I had on, you were next in order in, the, in that pecking order. But if you were the poor fella who booked online, <laughs> you got served last. And this actually ended up being a situation uh, where we would sit down uh, and order a drink, and we would come in, there would be folks seated there beside us, and we would come up, and we would sit down, and the person, the server there is helping them, would see our bracelet, would stop helping them, and would come over and immediately start to serve us, because we were higher on the pecking order. The whole thing was unbelievably awkward. Unbelievably. And it created an environment that, that didn't feel right even though I was the beneficiary of being right in the middle there as a guest of a member. But of course, as a guest of a member, my status oftentimes afforded uh, me even more leisure on my vacation than it did others who were staying at the same resort. This kind of stuff can go to your head, right? You can turn into a different kind of person when you have this sort of thing handed to you. Some of you are like, I like that person that I become when that happens. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> And it would seem to me that the vacation experience in that everyone else crowd is certainly, like I said, is, is hindered by that sort of process or that sort of way of dealing with folks. And it was only bracelet color, of course, in this story that identified uh, who was in and who at some varying degree was out. But in the first century, it wasn't about bracelets, and it certainly wasn't an all-inclusive resort back then in Jesus' day and then later in Paul's day. But there were those who were disrupting here in the earliest church, disrupting those communities with a, with a message that talked about what it meant to belong to the people of God, what it meant to be uh, those who were in Christ. And that, that message meant 
faithfully observing Torah. And with that came uh, that practice of circumcision, literally this marking of males. And we see this sort of thing come up all the time throughout the New Testament. We've actually looked at this in other sermon series in Paul's writing. But this shows up in other books in the New Testament. But here in Philippians, something happens, and we see it show up right here in our own text, where it certainly fired up the apostle. Now, you heard the scripture reading. You might be looking at the text there, and you're saying, what do you mean he got fired up? I don't see him getting fired up. But before we get into that, when we talk about what the fuss is all about, let's take a look at that fired up part. Let's take a look at that emotion that uh, Paul uses here. Look at the words that he, he talks about here. He says in verse 2, he translates these, the, verse 2, of course, has an exclamation point there at the end of the sentence, but there's these words that are used to apply to the people that he has in mind. He calls them dogs, right? That's not a, that's not a celebration of their alumni status with the University of Washington, all right? That's not, that's not what that is. But rather what he's doing is the group that he has in mind, most likely because of uh, their own position, their own status, their own sense of uh, elitism and belonging, uh, they most certainly applied that same word to outside groups. To the Gentile pagans, they certainly would call them dogs. And we see that in the first century from some of these groups. And here it is being turned to them. The people who are the insiders, uh, that outsider type language, that alienation language is now being used here by Paul. Just by itself, to call someone a dog in that type of context would tell you that the writer's a little bit fired up. But then he goes right after that with evil workers, calls them these evil workers. And that's a big statement to make to a group that most uh, certainly saw themselves as doing good and doing God's righteous work. And to say, no, they're not doing good work here. They're doing evil work here in what they're saying. And then this one, just to top it all off with this third one here, mutilators of the flesh. It's an interesting take there on the practice of circumcision. To take it and move it into this kind of category. No longer is this this ordered religious practice that signifies covenant faithfulness and belonging. It's taken to see as, as mutilation. And if you want a picture of kind of where Paul's using this uh, from, if you remember back in Mount Carmel, when Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and those prophets, they're trying to invoke their God and try to get a response out of Baal. And it says in the text that part of that uh, response was they were cutting themselves, right? They're just slashing themselves. That's the mutilation of the flesh as well. It's this kind of uh, seemingly nonsensical harming of oneself to invoke some sort of response. And Paul has just taken their circumcision and put it in that category. And that looks far different uh, than the picture that they certainly have in mind. But there's more here that points to this writer being fired up. Of course, you may not have felt, again, like I said, the force of that uh, in hearing the text or even reading it. Uh, there was uh, two particular commentators note that the vigor of the apostles' emotions is moderated so that its full force escapes the English reader. So you're not alone. Uh, experts have observed that particular thing. But even still, there is here in this text a large number of figures of speech that are used in a very short order. One of those is the repetition of the same word at the beginning of three successive clauses. You see that in verse 2. We have it here, it says beware, right? You see that show up. That word actually, in the NIV, what they do is they omit it three times. They only show it once. They say watch out instead of beware for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. 
But in our translation, you see the re- repetition of that word. That's just the way the Greek is. It has this repetition of the same word three times. So you know Paul's going, beware, 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 observe, 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 watch out, watch out, watch out. He wants to get their attention on this. The second thing we see is a, a play on similar sounding words uh, that are then set in opposition to each other to provide this kind of uh, heightened uh, sense or heightened force to it. And that is the words there uh, for circumcision and the word that we have for mutilation. You'll, say, you'll see in our own text has the word mutilate or mutilation there, katatame. Uh, uh, when we start talking about circumcision later, it's paratame. So it's a similar sounding word. You especially hear that in the ending. And you hear that kind of use by Paul. What he's trying to do is, again, get the crowd to feel the energy, the fire up that he feels about that. And that's just two of them so far. There's four more to go. This guy's fired up. He also uses repetition of the same uh, conjunction, uh, chi, and, in close succession. So you'll see chi, 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 or and, 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 just adding on. You can kind of see him. You can feel the energy in that. you got to geek out on Greek a little bit to feel the energy. I'm sorry. But it's there. The energy is there. There's also the use of alliteration that we see in there. Uh, dogs, evildoers, mutilation, they all start with the same letter in Greek. And so it's this rapid succession with these same letters. Uh, there's sentences that are used throughout that are of the same length. Uh, so this compact, and it's this one after another. Dot, 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 dot. And then, of course, the popular one used throughout biblical literature, there's use of chiasm. Uh, and this is uh, phrases that alternate positions in a kind of a crisscross fashion uh, that happens here. Uh, it's all employed, and all these together are employed for this kind of rhetorical effect that as the reader and the hearer are hearing this, that they are kind of being stirred up like Paul is, and they can feel the forces. The guy is, the guy is on fire, is what we would say if he was a speaker here right now, because he'd just be rattling the stuff off, and he'd be like, whoa! It's like drinking from the fire hose is what's happening there. Again, you got to geek out a little bit to see that. But that's where Paul's at here at this, this point. There's, of course, employed figures of speech here that are very forceful, and we'll see later on some words that are used in that uh, throughout. And then he says this. If, the, if you want to drop the bomb here at this point, Paul says that for it is we who are the circumcision. You see that in our text. It's we who are the circumcision. So he's talking about this group over here that is insisting that Torah practices and circumcision be very much part of what it means to be one who belongs to God, to be the people of God. And Paul translates over here and says, no, we, we the hearers, the readers here, my audience, it's all of us. We are the circumcision. And Paul knows full well that the audience that he's writing to and that he's speaking to that he has in mind at that very moment includes Jewish believers who indeed would be marked by circumcision, but also a large group of Gentile believers, many of which, many of which, unless they had made some sort of choice at some point, many of which would have been unmarked in this way. But yet he says it's we who are the circumcised, that he applies that to that audience. And of course, he'll go on to say it's we who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus. That's the second part of verse 3. This community of Jesus followers participating and is participating in God's ultimate story of rescue and renewal of the world. This is God's people. And he's drawing on that covenant language, that covenant identity here, in the face of those who say you have to do this to belong. 
He says, you already belong. That God inhabits this community. And it's important to hear those words as we read through that language and we hear what Paul's saying. When he's talking about inhabiting a community, that's temple language. He's talking about the presence of God being in the midst of this people. That not only do they belong, but if you think about the structures, the religious structures of the day, that God is seen and is active in the midst of those people the same way God would inhabit the temple. And so you could look to this community and to see where God is at work and what God is up to. And he says this about this mixed community, Gentile and Jewish folks coming together as Jesus followers. It's a rather bold claim. It's a bold claim to make. But it's an important one that's based on ancient promises. Of course, Paul's going to have in mind, like any uh, good Jewish reader, he's going to have in mind passages like Jeremiah 31. It says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will not, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or in Joel chapter 2, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, which is the passage that Peter picks up in Acts chapter 2 to talk about what has happened there at Pentecost. And so Paul can say to a community, a mixed community, that may not be physically circumcised, that these things have happened in this new covenant community, that God has been poured out onto people, a large, vast number of people, a group of people. And we're not looking at physical structures or physical manifestations. Like in Colossians 2 where Paul says, In Christ also you were circumcised, and he goes on to say, with a spiritual circumcision. If you read the Colossians text, chapter 2, if you read that alongside of Jeremiah's promise of new covenant, you'll see some interesting little things peek out at you uh, that talk about fulfillment there. Or in Romans chapter 2, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. Such a person receives praise not from humans, but from God. Of course, because of this, being a member of God's people, being one who's in, doesn't come, like I said, from markings of the flesh, as we note in the last part of verse 3, but rather God's own claim on their life in Christ. There's a regrouping that's happening here. There's a reforming of what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be Israel. And that regrouping is going to happen around the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who Paul identifies as the Messiah, the Christ. This is what God has promised. This is what God is up to. And now here's what it looks like in the community of faith. He's all fired up because that's the effect of the gospel. That this community of persons from all walks of life, from all regions of the world, would come together and be called as God's own people. That that was God's promise in Abraham from the get-go. And it's one that's found fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And when folks come along and start talking another gospel, we only need to go to Galatians 1 to see how Paul feels about that. He says, cursed to the one who would preach another gospel than one he's preached. 
And of course, this is all coming from a fellow who has the pedigree. If there was one who was going to be counted amongst that bunch of people that you would imagine would say, no, no, you've got to be circumcised, it would be Paul. And Paul will tell that to us, of course, in verses 5 through 6. You want to talk Torah? And you want to talk circumcision? Paul says in the first part of verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's according to the custom and the tradition. That was according to the law and instruction. You want to talk people of God? Paul would say in verse 5, second part of verse 5, he's a member of the people of Israel. So he checks that box right off. You want to talk pedigree? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Last part of verse 5. He can trace his lineage because that particular tribe wasn't one of the lost tribes. So he could take his lineage all the way back and show that he indeed is part of those tribes. He could trace that. You want to call foul on him? That he's not genuine? He's not the original article? He somehow bought himself in or convinced people that he's, he's Jewish, but he really is not? No. He's a Hebrew born of Hebrews. And the camp that he comes from took Torah seriously. He'll tell us that. He was a Pharisee. And you think about the people throughout history and Jewish history who are praised for their zeal which is the idea of someone who not only holds a commitment, but takes action on that commitment, who lives into it. If you go back to the Maccabean revolts and talk about people who were zealous, they believed, and they took appropriate action, Paul would say, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So he took action. And if you think that he somehow fudged on his Torah observance, that maybe he was a slacker, maybe he half did it, he would say to you there in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul checks all the boxes. He would be a superman amongst the folks that are coming forward. You would think Paul would be the one who would say what they're saying. But that's not what he advocates. He calls for something different. A different kind of life. Which explains again why he might be a little bit fired up at this point. Because Paul has discovered something, has discovered something that God is up to. And it's so transformative in his life. It changes everything about who he is and what he's going to be up to because of what God has accomplished for him. So much so that he uses a word in verse 8, scubala. We had to learn that when I was in youth group, scubala. And the way to know it, it's, it's one of those Greek words where you're like, well, how do, how do I remember that word, what it means? Well, we in the modern world have a device that helps us know what scuba means. And it's this. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> right? Scooby-Doo. Because scuba means, the translation we have here is obviously by someone British. <laughs> rubbish. When's the last time you used the word rubbish? That's Rubbish. I dare say you were drinking tea as you said it. Scuba has the effect of something that's being thrown out. In some uh, uses of the word, it's actually human excrement. That's the Scooby-Doo part. <laughs> it's something to be tossed out, to be gotten rid of. It's nothing that you want to keep. And if you do, I'll need to talk to you later about that. But that's what the word he uses here. All these things, all these status markers... All these things that in my life that were important, of the utmost important, 
that not only were the things that I held with who I was and my identity, but things I took action on. They're nothing compared to what I've discovered. So what is it that Paul's discovered? Quite simply, he discovered Jesus Christ. He's been transformed by the Messiah. And here is this one that we call apostle today, a writer here who's speaking to the church. But all these things he counts as a loss because of Christ. That something transformative has happened that has shaped his life. And I dare say it probably surprised him each and every day just how different he became because of that. The way he views the world now is everything comes into focus because of who Jesus is. And his pursuit now is to know Christ. And that idea of knowing Christ is an important one for Paul, but it's important for us today to hear as well what that means to know Christ. In one sense, the idea of knowing Christ is to be in a personal relationship. And that is to be personally connected to Christ. And Jesus, of course, uses imagery of the vine. And for us to hear that kind of imagery in our own day, that when we talk about knowing Christ, sometimes it becomes for us kind of a, a head thing. Uh, maybe we use the word like trivia, or I've got some information. I could, I, could, I could pass a content exam or something uh, with the information that I have here. But that's not what Paul's talking about in knowing Christ. He's talking about the sense that one's own relationship and connectedness is there to be known and to know. There's also a sense that there's action that's taken or moral action that would be taken uh, in response to knowing Christ. So it's not just a kind of a feel-good, I feel like God's arms are wrapped around me and I'm being embraced in this large hug, but it's moving us to a way of living, a way of life. Because I'm known and because I know Christ, I now respond differently. And we see this picture in our world today. I remember many years ago, there was a number of folks uh, in our congregation that I was uh, serving in that would go and uh, one, of their, one of the things they volunteered was, was they would hold babies. Um, and these babies that were born uh, amidst drug addiction, of their, their, their moms were uh, on whatever type of drugs when the child was born, and now the mom was out of the picture. And they found that if someone could come and just hold and rock and cuddle with the babies, it made a huge difference in the life of the way those, those kids turned out. Uh, just that affection and that touch. And to see that there's a sense there that when we're enfolded and held by Christ, known by Christ, that we live differently. That the way that we live is, it looks different. It has a different kind of existence. And then, of course, there would be the way that you'd imagine with someone like Paul, uh, who has a, a robust understanding of Scripture, whose intellect, as we look through the writings, just brilliant uh, writing and, and, and brilliant thoughts that take uh, what we know as Judaism and to, uh, to expand and show what God is up to in this expanded outreach, this, this extension to all the world as we read through the different writings. And so intellectual reflection that exists there. To know Christ, to know cognitively, but again, not in a kind of a simplistic way, but to really deeply ponder and know what Christ is up to and what it means to be in that character and that life of Christ. These all come together as one picture of what it means for Paul and for us today to know Christ, to be in relationship, to be in that personal place, that loved place 
to take action that follows from that understanding and to spend that deep pondering and to consider throughout our days. And you don't have to be a great academic to do this, right? You don't have to be uh, someone who has uh, lots of degrees and lots of accomplishments that way. Rather, it's a simply looking at life and looking at our own lives and asking the question over and over, what does it mean to follow Jesus here to that place? Where is Christ taking me by the hand and leading me into this area in my own work, in my own vocation, in my own life with family and friends and community? And so Paul wants to be that person. And that's the thing that he's discovered is that he's living in that now. He's living in that appreciation of being this one who is known by Christ and one who can know Christ. I think we should pause here for just a moment, though, and remind ourselves of something. This is being written by a guy who's in prison. We've said that throughout the series. He's not on a vacation. He's not on sabbatical. He's not enjoying the nice colored bracelet that gets you booze served first. He's not enjoying any of those things. He's facing the very real possibility that the commitment that he has to know Christ has led him to a place where it may cost his very life. And yet here is a person who is, feels like he is not only looking forward to the possibility of resurrection, but who is resuscitated, given life from that. That he has a new kind of life, that it's even more positive, more uplifting, that it's bigger and better than the life that he had before. That's some discovery that he's made. That's some possibility that God affords to us in Jesus Christ. So the question, of course, turns to us and asks us this morning, are we enjoying that kind of life? Do we have that kind of outlook? Is Christ shaping us in a way where we would say, that's the person I want to be. I want to be that person. I want to live there. Are we the type of person that Jesus talks about who finds that buried treasure and buys the field? Because they say, I want that reward. It's of great value. Or the pearl of great price. That we're pursuing it. That we're seeking after it. Even if that takes us to places where in our own logic and our own rationale we say, that's not self-preserving. That's not the safe way to do it. Is God taking us to those places because we are following the crucified Lord, the crucified Savior, the King of the world? There's something to be gained here. Paul notes that the possibility of resurrection is there. The same power that enlivens us, that expands our imagination, is the same power that can resurrect. So following after the author of life. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie. It's an older movie now, Saving Private Ryan. Remember, there's a, there's a scene at the end there where Private Ryan is a much older gentleman at this point. And he's standing in what looks like kind of an Arlington National Cemetery is where the scene's at. He's much older. He's at the end of his life. And he has tears coming down his face. And he's looking at the headstones of the folks that were sent in to rescue him. The story is set... He's the last of uh, several surviving brothers. Uh, he's the only surviving brother. Those have been killed at various places in World War II. And so uh, the department 
Uh, the army sends in a group to rescue him, to bring him out so that his family lineage, there would still be a member of the family in the next generation to go on. And guys give their life so that he could have life. And here he is at the end of his life, and he's asking the question at these, these stones of these folks who'd given the sacrifice, who sacrificed everything so that he could be rescued. Was it worth it? Did he live a life worthy of the lives that they forfeited so that he could live? Of course, that question pokes at us a little bit to ask the same question about our lives. Was our life modeled after a life that was worth or worthy of the high calling that God has on our lives? We talked before about the author David Brooks. He shared uh, several years ago, he talks about these different kinds of virtues in which we define our lives by. He talks about one being resume virtues. Those are the skills that we bring to the marketplace. So if you could put it on your resume, that would be probably be a resume virtue. You show the things that uh, you've done and accomplished, the degrees that you've had, the jobs you've held, the abilities that, and talents and skills. When I was back east, that was something that was popular uh, at the memorial services. People would list them out, and man, there were some accomplishments. Ivy League, ed- Ivy League education here, top school in the field over here, top business position, huge, huge success. These would be resume-type things, and I know there's many here who could really fill out a resume like that, would fill out those type of things. Paul certainly would be one of those as well, could fill those places out. But David Brooks talks about another one, what he talks about are eulogy virtues that define our lives. The ones where once we get past the accomplishments, we talk about a different list of accomplishments, the way you live life. The things people share, the stories they recount, the ways that you impacted the lives of others. And I think if we're honest for a moment, as great as all the accomplishments are in our lives, I think most of us would agree with Brooks that the eulogy virtues themselves are more important than the resume virtues. One eulogy virtue I'd put on the list here is this virtue of following after the crucified Lord. If Philippians 2 is correct, it doesn't afford to us what this world might call a great status. It lays us before the world and before our friends and our family and everybody we connect with as someone who is following a crucified Christ. We humble ourselves. We step forward with that great show of love in a downward direction. We don't lift ourselves up first. We don't put ourselves on the pedestal. But we consider others first, as Christ did. And yes, the resume might be full, right? Philippians 2 starts out with Jesus, who is in fact divine. It might be full. But here's the beauty. It doesn't matter what level you come to Christ at. It doesn't matter how greatly accomplished you are. You still can serve. You still can live and use the gifts that you have to honor Christ and to be a faithful witness. Friends, as we go away from this text this morning, we go away from a sermon, but we continue to ponder in our own hearts what it means for us to be defined as the Messiah's people, Christ's followers, those who have this knowledge in our heart that we live with that Christian mind shaped by God, illumined by the Holy Spirit, that we might not only think of, but
but we might also imagine and live into the reality of what it means to be faithful and true to the one who's been faithful to us in all ages. We praise in Christ's name.